This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Mary Pass, because the truth will set you free. July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com, because you can handle the truth. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. Tonight's special guest is Peruvian-American author, researcher, and lecturer, Renato Longato. We will discuss Peru and why the country is so relevant to the ancient alien theory. And in segment two, we will also discuss his new book, E.T. Presence, The Role of USA and New World Visions. Renato Longato will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, you know what to do. Go to our website, veritasradio.com, and subscribe. Once you subscribe, you'll receive immediate access to everything we have to offer. If you've enjoyed listening to segment one, don't you think it's time to listen to the full story and support Veritas? The next time you go to the movies, Know that you pay less per month for your Veritas membership and will have access to hundreds of hours of programs, hours of knowledge that you won't hear in the mainstream media. Subscribe today. And don't forget to visit our Veritas store where you can buy MMS. You never know when you'll need it. And we still have the futuristic metal-cased USB drives with seasons one, two, and three with bonus material. Go to the Veritas store to find out more. And to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website, veritasradio.com. And also, if you have an important story to tell, I want to be part of Project Vox Populi, write to us 
at Vox Populi at VeritasRadio.com. Other countries have openly announced and welcomed the ET presence. When will America own up to the truth, or will it be forced, under exceptional circumstances, to begin a communication with our cosmic counterparts? Tonight, we'll discuss insights and historical references concerning the potential cultural impact of the extraterrestrial presence in this millennium, with the USA as a leading country in the epicenter of economic, social, and geopolitical changes. An official contact with an advanced society may bring opportunity or risk, depending on how we face the challenges on our planet, and most importantly, within ourselves. Get ready to encapsulate more than 30 years of study and research about UFOs and looks at the forthcoming possibilities. For this and much more, Renato Longato is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. This is Freeman, and you're listening to Veritas. Renato Longato is a Peruvian-American author, researcher, and lecturer. He holds a bachelor's degree in law and political sciences. His life changed dramatically after three consecutive UFO sightings in 1979 while living in Peru. Renato lectures internationally, and his new book, E.T. Presence, the role of USA and New World Visions offers a new perspective about the presence of extraterrestrials and how their arrival over the last 60 years has been hidden, ignored, and covered up in the USA. And to learn more about Renato Longato and his work, visit his website at renatolongato.com. And directly from a very beautiful city that I used to frequent a lot in California called San Luis Obispo. I would like to welcome for the first time in Veritas, Renato Longato. Hello, Renato. How are you? Hello, Mel. It's good to hear uh, your voice again. You know, soon we're going to see each other uh, in another conference. And I'm glad to be here, really. Indeed. Glad to be in Veritas. Indeed. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And yes, Renato and I met two years ago at the e 
Ranch, James Gillenance Ranch. I was very impressed with with your lecture and insight, Renato. So I'm sure our listeners will enjoy tonight's interview. But just so that you know how special our meeting was, I don't know if you know this, but uh, you were privileged to have seen your first UFOs, I believe, in 1979. Well, to me, all my life I wanted to, but it never happened until I met you up there at East City. So it was a special meeting for me. That's right. Uh, we all have the opportunity to have a spectacular UFO sighting there. And it was recorded, was able to record with James Gillan's own camera. And on that night, so on the Field of Dreams, there's this place he called that uh, a UFO hotspot, which is the City Ranch. And let me tell you, we all have this amazing experience. And I'm glad that uh, for you that you can be also be a witness of this uh, emerging reality into ours. Which absolutely. Is the extraterrestrial presence. Yes, absolutely. And and beyond what I read of your bio, Renata, I know there's a lot of people who know you, but there may be some around the world who may not be familiar with you and your work. Tell us more of who you are and, and how this all began for you growing up in Peru, your experiences, etc. Um, yes, I'm, um, I was born and raised in Lima, Peru. I uh, went to college. I studied sociology and then uh, law and political sciences. And it was on 1979, when I was 17 years old, just a regular teenager who likes to play soccer, stay uh, with his friends, and go to movies and sometimes parties uh, with my family. We were living outside of Lima City, and um, we call it suburban areas, which is like, uh, in that time, was not populated as it is right now, talking about 1979. And let me tell you, there was uh, close to our house, uh, it is an archaeological ruin, a pre-Inca archaeological ruin, uh, 1,500 years old, just to let you know how close we are with tradition and with ancient cultures. And it was one night on the 15th of April, 1979, I was by myself, a Saturday night, I was watching TV, when the power started to fail on my in my house. I was on the second floor. And I went downstairs to check the power box. Everything was okay. The fuses were not, you know, uh, were there still working. Went back upstairs. And for some reason, I thought it could be a blackout somewhere. And I looked through the window of my bedroom, opened the windows, and looked through it, looking for something. I don't know why it caught my attention, because there was also disturbance on the TV transmission. And since I was looking at the sky with few houses, here and there, I would say every two blocks there was a house because that place was uh, really outside of Lima. It was more the countryside of Lima, specifically. I saw two red glowing lights, and that's when everything started in my life. Uh, with uh, uh, pursue um, this passion to know more about the ET presence, the UFOs uh, phenomena, and other subjects that attract me um, back then. And also... Uh, uh, I have this, um, yeah, after um, looking at these two uh, glowing objects, I would say UFOs, twice as big as a stoplight, uh, they were hovering close to each other, no noise at all, not other uh, uh, a sign of, of communication, it just really mesmerized me, it blew my mind, because it was not a plane, it was not a helicopter, it's in complete silence around, I would say, 8 o'clock at night, 8, 8.30, if I remember, and the um, object on the left start to hover a little bit, start to move around in complete, absolute silence, and from the bottom, I see these revolving lights, orange, yellow, and green, 
and then it just went up into the sky, stopped for a couple of seconds, and then practically disappeared. And then I looked down, the other was the other one on the on the right was still there, and it started to move towards the south uh, part of that place. So I had to walk around, go to uh, leave my bedroom, go to my oldest brother's bedroom, open the door, open the window, just to follow that object. When he was leaving, uh, I can remember the street lights, the poles of street lights were just blinking all of them. And even though there was a blackout only on the street lights, and the one who remained on was on the corner of my house. And then immediately the TV show I was watching came. And I could listen to the um, commercials and everything. And it really was surprised. You know what to expect. You know anything about UFOs. It was my first time I had this experience. Two weeks later, I have another UFO setting with my oldest brother because since I'm telling you guys, I used to live so far away from the city, there was not even a public transportation, and I had to rely on my brother uh, to pick me up after visiting my friends in the city, and then he gave me a ride back home. And two weeks later, uh, we were going back home. He picked me up in a certain place in the city, and we were driving back home. It was kind of dark highway, no lights in that area, and then we saw uh, two red lights on the on uh, like I would say two blocks or three blocks uh, uh, away from us. And I thought, you know, uh, and I thought this is a car parked in the middle. Maybe it's you know out of order. So I told my brother Gino, that's his name. Said Gino, slow down. There is a car practically parked in the middle of freeway. Slow down. So he slowed down. The moment he slowed down, we saw those lights elevating from the ground, and I was perplexed. I don't know what to think. And then it just sent like a flash of light. The flash of light illuminated inside the cabin of the truck and it stopped the engine. So I closed my eyes, Mel, because I was freaked out. Wait a second. The light actually came inside the car and stopped your engine? That's that's what it is. Oh, I saw okay. a flash. I saw a flash, like a photographic flash, mm -hmm. like a camera flash. In the distance, I saw something like flashing. And then immediately, in, in immediately, I saw all the cabin of the track illuminated. I can, I can, I was able to to see my my feet because I I, I looked down because I got scared and the engine stopped. The engine stopped and then I remember my brother saying, "That thing is flying away." He looked, you know, he took a look and saw that that's going to the sky, Renato. I was still looking down. I didn't want to uh, raise my head or anything like that because I was scared. And then the engine started by itself. The engine stopped by itself, and he drove straight to our house, I think, uh, 100 kilometers per hour, which is like uh, <laughs> almost like, you know, 150 miles per hour. Yeah. And we arrived in five minutes. We're all excited and everything. Then two weeks later, the pattern was every two weeks, always on the weekend, always on Saturday. But the second, and the, excuse me, that was the second time we had this uh, weird encounter with my brother, all family related, of course. Then the third time, was with my mother and my youngest brother, Bruno, which actually lives in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And he was playing in the garden, in the backyard. I was on the second floor, and I heard him saying, why don't you guys come down? He was 13, 14 years old at that time. And uh, there's something uh, flying above the house. So I ran downstairs, I went straight to the backyard, and my brother was 
you know, looking at this cancer, look at that. And we saw, me and my mother, uh, we saw a lenticular object, metallic. It was flying in a pentagonal or hexagonal way. And sometimes you see the, um, the, the sunlights, a uh, reflection of the sunlights in this metallic object uh, look like. And then in a stop, really straight up from us. And then I hugged my mother, I hugged my brother because I felt like, what's going to happen next? Then something completely uh, different happened to me. The excitement, the nervousness of the, of the moment, of course, came into a calm relaxation. And I felt a smooth vibration on the crown of my head, on the top of my head. And I felt something similar to uh, friendship, something like that. And I remember I said something else, but I, I, I don't know what it was. If my brother would have been here, or Bruno, the youngest one, in that time, he remembered I said something else, but I always forget about that. I don't know what I said, but he always, you know, Renato, when I tell the story, he said, you said this and that, but I cannot remember. Since then, every night until 2 midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 a.m. in the morning, I was looking in the window, looking at the stars, trying to find out more information. I have another experience to make the story short. Uh, in, that was in June of 1979 because I wanted to know answers, how I can see them again. I was fascinated, triggered. My curiosity was overwhelmed, uh, Mel. And I tried to find out how I can do it. And then I went to sleep. Once those nights, I stayed really awake until very uh, late that night. I went back to sleep. I opened my eyes, sat down on my bed, not on the side, just on my bed, almost on the pillow, and I saw the door of my bedroom opening by itself. The bedroom was illuminated. And a woman came in. She was five, six, five, seven, Nordic, Eastern European, beautiful, but with an, uh, I would say, uh, like eyes beauty, something very cold beauty, I would say. At the same time, I felt like I was in front of an icon, someone very important that can when she looked at me, her eyes were pristine green, and I was like an open book. I felt overwhelmed because I knew that she knew a lot about me. She walked uh, close to my bed and uh, looked at me, raised her uh, uh, left hand, touched uh, in between her eyes, and I mentally I, I, I heard this, Renato, what you need to do is to use your mind. I have no response because I was so impressed. She uh, walked two more steps, very close to uh, the, the side of my bed, and with more compassionate voice, she, uh, she said again, what you need to do is to use your mind. She did it for three times, and I remember I repeated, I need to use my mind. Then I went back to sleep, opened my eyes, 6.30 in the morning, Mel, and the first thing I did was to look at the newspaper to find out information how I can use my mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Talking about Peru, developing country in 1979, there was no CD, DVD, or VHS in that time, audio tapes that can tell you about UFOs and all that kind of story. It was very difficult, very rare to find unless you go to, you know, specialized bookstores and find something mostly from other countries, mm -hmm. from Argentina or from Brazil that have more story about ufology and those subjects. But it was a rare thing that happened to me. I ended up studying Silva mind control. Oh, I the, Silva, the Silva method. 
the Silva method uh -huh. exactly, and I became on the crash course uh, of Maria Luisa Bruguet. Maria Luisa Bruguet was an Argentinian instructor who came to Peru specifically to open new groups, and I became one of her students. I became the number one, they say, and then finally I have the uh, honor to um, meet in person Jose Silva himself, who uh, was in Peru for a, a super event. And um, I was very uh, keen to those um, exercises, go to alpha level, remote viewing, uh, their, um, uh, reading through them um, with your fingertips, reading your car, dermal optic, you know, dermal optic uh, remote vision too. So I felt like really that that was the, um, uh, um, the field I have to enter to, I have to explore. And that's what everything has started in my life. Then I look for information about UFOs and everything related to extraterrestrials and psychic abilities and everything. So that was my beginnings, uh, Mel. And then in 1985, I have an extraordinary encounter um, in the highlands of Lima, 95 kilometers east of Lima, in a place called Ricardo Palma City. It uh, used to be, in that time, a picnic area, sun and country. Sol y Campo, and uh, after three months that I've been bombarded by uh, in images in my mind, by images in my mind of a, a river, uh, the mountains, and uh, a beautiful place with vegetation around, I identify those places as um, the Andes nearby Lima. I didn't know exactly the spot, but any time I was, uh, let's say, on the street, I went to the kiosk to buy a newspaper. I opened the newspaper. There was an article about the Andes or vacations. Or I was walking on the street and someone passed by and talking to someone and saying, hey, we have a wonderful time this weekend on the Andes outside of Lima. And on radio, when I turned on the radio. So there was an event of so synchronicity events that was telling me where to go. And after three months of constant uh, constantly uh, synchronicities, telling me to go outside of Lima, I did. I went to this place, to uh, nearby Ricardo Palma, to the picnic area named San An An Country, and I stayed there. It was on the 15th of March, uh, 1985, final round, that at 11 o'clock, I went there. I decided to go uh, during the day. I was not, <laughs> not able to go at night, to tell the truth. And uh, since the place was a, a picnic area, it was um, open to the public. It was middle of the week. I was by myself. And uh, while I was walking to this place, I recognized it as the images I've been receiving for three months. And then this is it. So I stayed there for 10 minutes and said, this is it. I came here. I don't understand. I have to leave. The moment I said to myself, well, I'm going to leave because nothing happening here. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Then... Everything stopped around me. When I say everything stopped, is like the wind uh, stopped blowing, the breeze, uh, the water uh, nearby river, the Rimac River, which is near was nearby, and the chirps of the birds, the leaves, everything that makes this sound when you are in the countryside uh, so uh, beautiful and staying in contact with nature stop. And I felt I was like inside a bubble, an artificial place because everything stopped and then in front of me in a distance 
I don't know. I mean, I would say 15 or 20 meters. I don't know how much that is in feet. Uh, I saw an arc, a luminous arc of energy that start to uh, uh, bleak or shimmer. And then from the center, it appears, it pops out a six foot two uh, tall um, man, uh, look like a human being with gray, delicate hair, uh, bone, uh, cheekbones, uh, uh, broad shoulders, slender, wearing a metallic suit, kind of a uniform, I would say, with some sort of uh, symbols on his shoulder and with a white belt on his waist. His arms were, uh, arms were longer, close to the knees, and he was not touching the ground. Of course, I almost passed out. It was shocking. I was nervous. I was looking everywhere. I wanted to leave, but I couldn't at the same time. It was a mix of emotions. It's not as romantic uh, as some people have. My experience was uh, somehow shocking. Uh, difficult to express with words. Uh, I, I kneeled down because I, I wanted to, to, to be safe for some reason. And then uh, this entity uh, said into a telepathic message as clear as someone whispering on my ear said, don't worry, I will not hurt you. We have been following you. He said that in plural, we have been following you. We like what you've been doing all these years. So I stood up, I was still was shaking, and I asked to myself, what I've been doing. So, for this entity or extraterrestrial, I will say, he said, you've been doing your meditation, you've been doing, uh, I was vegetarian for two years in straight, and that in that time, uh, you were doing all those, all of this um, uh, life, life that have changed, and we want you to continue doing this. Of course, I was not smoking or drinking alcohol. Uh, uh, and uh, in, in back in those years, I was in a very disciplined regime, I would say, with meditations and uh, 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 sharing information about this um, amazing um, subject. And then I realized that uh, he looks familiar to me somehow. I cannot explain that. And he said that I have another name. Every human being have another name, and it's like a vibration of their higher selves that when you put into letters, is like a personal mantra. He said that, and a couple more things, and finally he said, we will be in touch. And he went backwards, he didn't never turn around, he went backwards, the arc of light practically swallowed him, started to shimmer, and it, it disappeared. Then I felt the wind, uh, the breeze, and the sound of the river, and its waves against the rocks on the shore, and I look at the mountain in front of me, and I saw a, a classical uh, disc, metallic disc, that was hovering over the top of the mountain, then make a, a slight movement in an angle, and it disappeared. Then I uh, kneeled down again, I uh, touched the ground, touched the pebbles, touched myself, look around, I was practically exhausted. I was sweating. I was like in high stress, after a high stress, like everything, my emotions that were controlled somehow, now I understand after all these years, were contained, but then it was a, like a deluge of emotions that came and overwhelmed me for a moment, my heart was beating faster, 
it is difficult to explain with words. Did you have missing time? I think so, Mel. I think so because I don't know if that lasts for, I don't know. For me, it was a couple of minutes. But I don't know because I went back and, and sit down on a rock there, looking at everything, that everything went back to normal. And I look at my watch. I didn't see any um, 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 problem with my watch, but it was like 40 minutes later. So the intensity of the experience would have been more in time, or at least uh, two or three minutes. I cannot say that. The problem for me started when I went to take the bus back to Lima City, because I was like an hour and a half on the, on the eastern part of Lima. I mean, going to the Andes, because the west is the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. And what happened is, and that's what I understood, that I just came back to reality, back to the noise, the traffic, uh, back to the pollution of the city, back to people going back to work, uh, people um, doing different things in their life, you know, different lifestyles. I mean, it was like being in two complete opposite places. And I have to digest all of that. And it took me a couple of months to understand that experience. So that's what I call that the day after effect. Because when you are, you, because we have to come back, not only for any extraterrestrial contact, when you have a beautiful meditation and someone is in nirvana or in ecstasy on samadhi in a, in a state of grace, and then you come back, you come back with that kind of feeling. But then you have to go back to, to your job. You are a father or a son, and I had to go back to college. And then listening to my friends, planning to have a, a party on the weekend, it was just so opposite to what I've experienced. So I didn't feel like I fit into a regular lifestyle for a while. I was always thinking and pondering and trying to understand what I went through. And I only told that to a few people that really um, uh, really were close to me, only because, I mean, it's going to be impossible for someone just to to tell about this story, even though you want to shout, you want to say to the world, listen, this happened, this is real, and this is uh, a reality. It happened to me. You have to believe me. No, people will not believe you, man. (laughs) People will make make a joke of you, will will listen to you, will say, well, shrug their shoulders and say, okay, you know what, I have things to do, that's very interesting, but why don't we have a couple of drinks, and I can tell you with a group of friends, so you can tell us more of your fantastic stories, I mean, they're treating you like a pet sometimes, or other, <laughs> <laughs> sorry to say that, but sometimes, you know, I, I went through that, so uh, after that, I decided, you know, to the richness of the experience, to keep it for myself for a couple of months, and be careful to whom I'm going to talk to, or share it, because then it's kind of like a boomerang effect, it can really affect you, it can people make have you doubt you have you having hallucinations? You are reading too much stuff of this uh, about ETs or UFOs. Are you having uh, drugs or this and that? People think many things, uh, Mel, and I understand that because they haven't been into that kind of experience. The people that have been into that kind of experience and others related to, uh, we can say as say extraordinary ones that take you out of the box, out of the reality, out of the world. Uh, in a spiritual realm, whatever you can uh, name it, you have to corrupt. When you tell someone, 
your experience get corrupted with words because it is from a, a different reality that is coming into ours, into my reality, entering into my world, into my consciousness, into my spirit, into my life, and then I deliver back to society, back to do my stuff like anybody else, pay my bills. It's like what I tell uh, our, our mutual friend Paula Harris when she has, you know, her book, How Do You Talk to a Bowl of Light? And this reminds me of that. How do you explain to people? And by the way, folks, I'm working on a story. Uh, you probably heard, folks, that I did uh, what's called Project Vox Populi. Recently, Renato, I decided that there are people out there who are scared of telling their story. You have been brave and some people have been brave to come forward and just put your life out there to share with people. But there are some out there who live in fear, who live in the, in the fear not only because they may, be, they may be hurt, but they also may be ridiculed. And a lot of people do not want to be ridiculed. And you probably went through that. I went through that also. But uh, we started one of our shows uh, last week uh, or a few a few days ago of an individual who told us the whole story and now that's opening the door to more. So I'm receiving email from people that are telling me similar stories. But there's one story, Renato, of somebody, I'm not going to name names or locations, but it was in Europe and it's very similar to yours. He actually saw he was actually sitting down with his family at night having dinner and the, the light started flickering. The dog went crazy and went running to the backyard and went to the field. This was in, in Switzerland somewhere mm. and saw some balls of light, some red, some yellow. And it's a long story. I'm just going to just give it a little bit to, to the audience. But it also had to deal, deal with this car. The orbs went to his car. They materialized the car. I have pictures. And, and if I have an opportunity, I will bring him because I'm sure that the, the person won't mind that I show him to you. He's too scared for his life, for the ridicule factor. He came to the United States, showed those pictures at a conference. And not even a few hours later, he had several people from the U.S. government knocking on his door and removed every single negative, every single picture. Luckily, a friend of his had copies of those pictures. So it's more or less your story a little bit with the picture. So I'm going to show them to you. But anyway, speaking mm -hmm. of your book, I'm going to touch a lot about your book, but I, since I have you here and you're from Peru originally, I have to ask you, Peru seems to be a magnet for people who want answers about our past. You have sites like uh, Machu Picchu, the Nazca Lines, and the Ancient Alien Link uh, seem to point to Peru. Why is Peru so important? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, in the early 90s, I was commissioned by the uh, uh, Peruvian uh, Tourist Department to compile information research about non-traditional tourism that we call esoteric spiritual tourism, which is right now is booming because people don't want also to have the typical tour, but also to have some experience in certain places or hot places mm -hmm. like in Machu Picchu, Nazca Mine, and others around the world. And one of the things that uh, we uh, uh, have to think about um, is that uh, those places were chosen by ancient um, members of forgotten civilizations that have to go beyond our recorded history because there is a gap of information in our universal history, in humankind as well. So what happened is these places 
have to be located in specific areas, in specific locations that can bring those magnetic um, uh, ley lines, I will say those ley lines, that are rich in quartz, mica, iron, underground water, and in a specific location, which is Cusco is 13 degrees south of the equatorial line, is always a solar city because it was placed specifically to receive the sun rays on the 21st of June, not the 24th, at least right now, known officially, but the 21st of June, and project an immense uh, 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 um, light and shadow of a puma, of a lion puma in Cusco. And at the same time, it is uh, a place that you have rich in history, rich in, in, in tradition, rich in magical religious belief from centuries that people were using before the arrival of the conquistadors or the Spaniards were using psychoactive. So that mentality, that tradition, that part of the cultural belief, it is important to understand the cultural belief, which also includes spirituality, brings that kind of openness into Mother Earth, Father Sky, into shamanism, into the magical religious belief, into syncretism, the mix of Catholic religion and the Andean um, uh, priesthood or the Andean uh, uh, sacred knowledge about uh, Mother Nature or Pachamama, they call it the Andean priest called that way. So it's similar to what we also have in Mexico, where it's a huge group of people they have seen and see all kind of UFO sightings. So uh, uh, we, we have to understand that the people welcome this and it is part of our reality. So if you go to the high Andean plateaus, and I'm talking from 3,000 uh, meters above sea level, around 12,000 or 13,000 uh, uh, feet above sea level, you can talk with members of these uh, remote community and villages in the Andes and they will tell you, yes, I've seen they coming down from the sky. Yes, they are are part of um are part of uh, of our life. Sometimes they heal our children who have accidents. Sometimes they uh, uh, talk with us. They took seeds from them, you know, and they they're they're back uh, now and then. But they are not afraid. They're not thinking they're gonna be chopped or <laughs> be used as a guinea pigs. They don't have this kind of issues or problems that the Western society may have and the certain powers within the structure or certain elites in the Western society may need that, that kind of information. Look, I have the privilege to coordinate uh, in 2005 uh, with the Peruvian Air Force a secret, not secret, I would say a private meeting in the Peruvian Air Force School of War with the general Pedro Avila in that time, and um, a famous anthropologist already, uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, Fernando Fuensalida Vormar. He was the consul of the prime minister uh, on the previous government, previous Peruvian government. I will not say the name, it doesn't matter right now. He believed in UFOs. He got information that in a specific northern coast part of Peru, it's in a specific place that I've been there, and I have all your recordings of a UFO interaction with uh, 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 friends of mine that also came from the United States to have this uh, UFO sighting, and we got it, you know. Uh, in that area of a alleged crash 
or something fall from the sky and there was an unknown team, organized team of, 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 of people that were not part of the Peruvian army or armed forces that entered illegally the Peruvian territory and picked up some debris of the remains and then left the, left the country. He knew that because of sources of natural intelligence, because no, Fernando Fuenzalida, not only being the consul of the prime minister, he was the director of high studies, logistic studies of the Peru, of, of Peru. So I would say he was a member of the think tank of intelligence of the Peruvian government in that time. And he was very interesting. And I coordinated that, um, 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 in that meeting. And the guest speaker was, uh, Jamie Maussan. There were members of the Peruvian Congress, fire pilot, uh, pilot fighters. They were a member of the Peruvian Astronomy Association, of the director of air trafficking control of the international uh, airport in Lima, etc., etc. I will not continue with that. But I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, uh those, I don't mean to interject, but those yeah. people who, who cross into Peruvian territory, do you think they were American crash retrieval people from the military? I think so. They came from maybe from the Panama uh, um, um, base, military base, mm -hmm. because it's close and they can go through Colombia. You know, the America, American Army have, you know, um, headquarters and other garrisons in Colombia, of course. Yeah. And they can move, you know, swiftly in the Peruvian border and get into the area and pick up whatever remains were there. So if someone like Fernando Fuenzalida, which sad enough is passed away a couple of years ago, told me that in a private conversation, you know, I believe him. And look I at what believe. Clifford Stone talks about. You, you probably know who Clifford, Sergeant Clifford Stone yes. is. You know, yes. talks about the crash retrievals in, in many countries. So this, this probably continues to happen to this day. I think so. It's right. I think so. This is happening because whatever information you may gather, whatever the object the Department of Defense or, or the big corporation can gather about energy, about who knows what other uh, nanotechnology, biotechnology, will always have the advantage to have this knowledge for power. And I'm, I'm sure because sometimes, I mean myself, I have recorded UFO sightings, you know, and the first thing when I just downloaded in YouTube, the first two comments were from people that denying or trying to trash me. When I tracked them down, they don't have a history in YouTube. They just created that uh, 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 site they have a few minutes ago just to debunk me. Yep. You know, I'm sure uh, this is not new for you that you've been doing amazing <laughs> research and interviews, <laughs> you know, with, with people who have, you know, experience in this field. And there's uh, some weird stuff. So th the only thing in the story is, but I also mentioned in my book, is the vigilantes in Mexico, right? The vigilantes in Mexico started in 1991 after this eclipse that happened in July in 1991. And there was for six minutes only lasted. Also was, this clip was seen. And, and the shadow was over the United States, but it was in Mexico when the UFOs show up, and there were videos from different parts of Mexican territory that were caught, uh, that were taken by just people trying to record the, the clips, and then it formed the vigilantes. They, the extraterrestrials, through the UFOs, through their crafts that they have, this amazing technology that allows them to travel, perhaps to try time and space, allowed they, they allow themselves to be seen by the Mexican public and then, you know, be on the national TV, on the media, on the news. While the clips happened also in the United States in Mexico, they decided to show themselves in Mexico. I wonder why. 
because they don't I shoot them down. Exactly. <laughs> and then the belief of the Mexican uh, people, they created vigilantes. Just on November last year, they have this group celebrate 20 years of existence. 20 years, my friend. And the same thing I would say, I would can tell you, and not only in Peru, but also in Argentina, Chile, Brazil, that you know very well. And uh, uh, in these places where you have these uh, ancient uh, civilizations, more than the history tr can track it down. When you have the Nazca lines, they were chosen for a specific pattern, not because the place was beautiful and I, would like to, I want to build there, it's because there is a telluric and magnetic forces that turns into hotspots, like a source of energy or some sort of other uh, interdimensional uh, stargates that we still are, you know, on the tip of the iceberg trying to find out more about that through quantum physics and other kind of inf scientific information that's coming up into 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 uh, knowledge right now. So uh, those places have these uh, specific hotspots that you can see these UFOs constantly, and that you interact with them, your experience can grow within time, Mel. And you, you're absolutely right. What you mentioned about people creating a new YouTube account or a new forum account, that's called CoinTelPro, and this happens all the time. But I keep thinking of Peru, and you mentioned the word Stargate uh, portals or wormholes. There's one area in, in Peru, and one of my listeners brought it to my attention. You, I, I'm sure you know it. What about the Puerta de Hayumarca, doorway of the Amaru Meru in southern Peru, close to the Lake Titicaca? Can you tell us about this location and what it, is, it could it be? It's true. Uh, I was, I was, uh, I had the opportunity to go with uh, Jorge Luis Delgado. He's been featuring ancient. Uh, Aliens you know, by the Discovery Channel, if I'm not wrong, I guess. Uh, Jorge Luis Delgado was the one, the first one to uh, explore that area. And I named him my first book that I wrote in 1992, A Message from the Andes, El Mensaje de los Andes. I mentioned my uh, trip to uh, Hayumarca, or Amarumuru, Amarumeru, excuse me, uh, near the Titicaca Lake. Besides that, the Titicaca Lake is a UFO hotspot, my friend. Mm. That I mean, it's, you can stay there with a couple of cameras, a couple of nice ULC sand UFO activity. The Hayu Marketplace is a very powerful place because, for some reason, these telluric and magnetic fields can, um, I would say, affect uh, if we meditate, if we go into alpha level, can help us to connect with the other side that other reality that is still there and is these stargates are help us to move our consciousness mind and spirit consciousness into a different reality so i have been i have been there several times and every time i have had a an experience and uh, depends on the intensity and what you're looking for depends on what you want to look you will receive what you want also i would say that uh, the place exists and is in a, in a, in a, near a freeway on the way to Titicaca Lake. It's really ancient. There's no way to say that this belongs to a local culture or not. It's not classified by the archaeologist, but you see a typical door carved into massive granite stone there. And it has been a place also for shamanic ceremonies for centuries now. So the place is a sacred site that we call in Quechua language, the language of the Incas, Waka. Waka is a temple or a sacred place, like Shasta for the Incas would have been a Waka. It's nothing built there, but it's a, a sacred place because it connects you between 
Mother Earth and Father Sky. And that's a Stargate, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a Stargate. No? If, if a group of people go, a group of people go and meditate and then touch uh, that, that place and feel the vibration because you feel something else, you are really into alpha level, you make a contact there, you will have the experience you're looking for what you need. I cannot tell you exactly what you're going to see or have, but people have that uh, experience peace, harmony, and the places start to, you start to feel something else. It's not like you are being, um, you know, uh, convinced because once you're there, you're going to experience something immediately dramatically. No, there is a feeling, there is a sense, otherworldly sense, when you get there, because there is a confluence of telluric and magnetic energy and ley lines, and the position is exactly with certain areas, like the key parts of the Earth, I will say. That the nervous system of the Earth that goes in that area, it was built these places, and you have this um, uh, a portal, which is exactly carved like a portal. And if you uh, picture the image of the Hayumarka, you'll see two uh, carvings on the side, on the left and on the side, like they supposedly were like uh, some sort of carving in a cylindrical pattern, exactly carved a big end to the wall. And what happened is, that according to some people, the vision that they have picked up, not only one, but other people as well, that was filled of qu- with quartz, with quartz. But who knows in what time, perhaps in, you know, centuries or thousands of years ago. But the important thing is that there is no, uh, 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 there is not classified as an archaeological a place that belongs to a specific culture in, in the Andes. The Hayumarkas time by itself, as a, uh, a solitary place, but very powerful one for all the seekers and the people who wants to contact with themselves and with other realities. And how about Nazca lines? We, we hear many versions of many people. What do you think the purpose was of those that we call them hieroglyphs? That's a good question because the, uh, we have to look at the uh, Nazca culture uh, according to the archaeologists. The Nazca culture is the responsible uh, to create the the Nazca lines. Uh, the place called, according to the, to the archaeologists and historians, the main temple of the center of the Nazca culture is Kawachi Machi. That's the name, Kawachi Machi. And it's in a do- typical pyramid, adobe brick pyramid, in the middle of the desert that once would flourish. And the uh, architects or designers that the nobody knows where they came from were capable to uh, uh, map the area, explore the area, and miles around to create these magnific- magnificent geoglyphs. The, th- the, uh, the way they built it is not as simple as they shown by their technologies because there has been replicas done 15 or, or even 20 years ago, and what's happening is it just, with the wind, time, and erosion, it just vanished or disappeared from the surface. The ones in Nazca did not disappear, or haven't disappeared in centers, who knows, perhaps thousands of years, and they were drawn or designed non-stop. It, in other words, whoever built and the crew who were under you know under the orders of an architect or main designer did not stop because there are no traces that or or or, or de- debris or traces that they 
move the, uh, the, the surface of the, of the desert, the pebbles, put them aside on each side on the specific marks. No, it has been done since the beginning till the end, non-stop, only to, see, to be seen by air. The only thing I believe is that the Nazca Lines is a result of the introduction of an ancient civilization that came from the South Pacific. In my research, I traveled to Easter Island, to the nematic Easter Island, which is between uh, Chile, the southern part of South America, uh, and uh, uh, Tahiti, Morea, and Bora Bora. Mm -hmm. I stayed there for 10, 12 days. And uh, there is in uh, nearby, uh, in the center of the island, the Ahuvinapu. The Ahuvinapu is a structure that looks exactly, resembles exactly now an Inca wall. If you have an inclination of 10, 13 angle, is looking towards the sea. It's specific for uh, navigational purposes into South American coast. It, the structure is not, have no replica in any other Polynesian culture around that area, including New Zealand, Australia, um, Hawaii, and the Polynesian Islands. And according to the father, archaeologist father of Easter Island, William Mulloy, is the most sophisticated structure and stone labs built in the whole area. Where do they came from? It was the only structure that they built, besides the Moais, these giant, you know, silent uh, structures, uh, mm -hmm. the statues that are there. Nobody knows. Are there any DNA or any textile, ceramic, that belongs to any Andean culture? Not at all. Uh, who built that? How this can be so clear, exactly, a replica from the Inca architecture? I have taken the picture and showed to professional tour guides and archaeologists in Cusco myself within all these years and say, what is this? They look at it and say, well, I don't know. This could be here. Where do you take this photo? Easter Island. They don't believe me. And, 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 and since you mentioned the Moai, I have mm -hmm. to ask you because... It's taken how long until somebody decided to start <laughs> digging, and now we can see that these Moai monolithic human figures have the full body buried. Why is it that it took until recently for somebody to realize that maybe we need to do some digging and find, not only are they finding the full bodies, they're finding writings underground. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the Rongorongo tap. Uh, the Rongorongo wood um, uh, um, uh, table that we said, uh, they have these um, um, uh, symbols right. and patterns. I've known that, and they have, have found lately, and these are on the back of these huge statues, which is uh, uh, really enormous, really. And we haven't done any other more exploration or diggings there until the present that we're finding more things. One thing that Claudio Cristino, the director of the Anthropological Archaeological Center of Easter Island told me that those Moais, just to make, uh, just to step aside a little bit from my explanation from Nazca, because it's all related in my opinion, they have like a cover, you know, they cover their uh, middle part of the, of the body, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the genitalia with a kind of prone, but the knot on the back and the model of the prone is exactly the same that was used by Egyptian priests. How they did it, he told me they don't know. They don't know how the sweet potato arrived because it's an American uh, tuber. They don't know how they do um, 
um, and a specific cooking, underground cooking, that also the Incas did in the, in the in, that they do in the and they did in the Andes, and still more people in Cusco and in the Andes do it, do it, which is the Pachamanca, which is to eat from the mother, from the earth, which is to dig in, put hot stones covered with uh, banana uh, leaves and other herbs, and you cook meat or chicken or whatever, potato or corn, maize, and in a specific way. They do it the same system in Easter Island, and I'm talking about more than 5,000 kilometers away from Peru. But according to Thor Heyerdahl, the currents, sea currents, can take you there. When he did his project of Conchiqui, he did not arrive to Easter Island. He arrived to other islands, you know, not so close from Easter Island. But he insisted that could be one of the ways that, you know, in another race, perhaps from uh, another culture, excuse me, perhaps from Peru, arrived there. The Incas were not uh, sailors. <laughs> there was a power, anyway, like any other empire, but they were not sailors. And there's no traditional oral record, oral tradition, that tell us that they way, they uh, all the way, they went all the way to Easter Island, to an unknown place, a remote island. No. Instead, you find a port. You find a port on the coastal of Peru, the southern part of Peru, in a state named Arequipa, there is a port uh, named Matarani, which is a corruption of a Polynesian word Mataharani. And from then, you from there, excuse me, you can go to Nazca, which is on the northern part of Matarani, the port of Matarani, which is an ancient port. Nobody knows when it was already uh, established or built, you know, to Nazca. And from Nazca, you have the immense geoglyphs. You know that you 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 see the hummingbird, the monkey does not don't belong to 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 the desert, does not belong to the Andes. It belongs to the Amazon. You have the 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 spider or tarantula, which is only one kind of tarantula you can only find in Madre de Dios, which is a department, another department or province, I would say, too close to uh, Cusco. The only those kind of uh, uh, arachnids, the kind of tarantula, only lives there. So you have a group of people who design these geoglyphs, eternal geoglyphs, you know. They have this pattern that always stays there. You go straight, you take a map from Peru, it takes you straight to Cusco, and then it's straight to Maridios, which is on the Amazon. It's a complete Amazon rainforest. It's a place with most people that live there are tribal, and then people living in the city. Well, for what purpose? What is the actual purpose to make him so big? Because logic, I'm not sure if my logic is correct or not, but logic tells me that it's done so that those from above can see them because you can't see them while you're sta you know, standing on top of them. Correct. You are correct. The only way is to be seen by the air. According to other researchers, Dr. Javier Carrera, who passed away years ago, of the engraved stones of Ica, I saw his collection and he explained that and they were then by an ancient civilization that the later inhabitants mixed with the local inhabitants, they mixed the culture and they created the Nazca culture. The same thing that happened with the first settlers of Cusco. They built Cusco. They have the sacred city of Cusco where people from uh, foreign people and others were not allowed, only the elite lived there. They built over the top of Machu Picchu. You go to the Inca Trail 
which have seven watchtowers, seven very symbolic number. The last entrance called Winai Waina, which means forever young. And then you enter to Machu Picchu, the old mountain, when you have this magnificent citadel that is self-sufficient with water, terraces, with different kind of uh, 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 fruits and corns and crops, so you can self-sustain yourself. And if you want it, you can block that area. So the same people that um, um, that uh, were the ones who built the Nazca Lines were also the first settlers of the, the Inca Empire. And then the descendants mixed with the local natives, you know, increase the cultural level, mix uh, the knowledge, and then continue evolving and continue uh, continue as an empire. But you have the historic part, and then you have the mythological part. And that's when everything gets into the past, because the ones who built Nazca Line had to be uh, given a sign into the sky, to be seen from the sky. According to Dr. Cabrera, who who was uh, uh, well known by Eri von Daniken mm. and also by uh, Giorgio Sukalos, you know, sure. of ancient aliens, and uh, Eri von Daniken. Um, uh, he said that they had to do with a relation uh, with the Pleiades, with the Pleiades, because he believed that the Pleiades were um, somehow, some way, exploring uh, our Earth a thousand of years ago, and they settled temporarily in what is now Peru in what is now Nazca. So, uh, if you can tell me, you know, you can ask me, Renato, that sounds a little bit, um, uh, you know, out of context. Well, uh, Dr. Cabrera's research are, uh, were done for, for several years, for a span of two or three decades. So, the information that he has in the gravestones are quite interesting, even though he has um, specific stones that tell us of an ancient race that were capable to do some heart transplants and brain transplants according to what you see on the engraved stones. Now, if you use you, uh, the information of ancient uh, astronaut theory that can be seen by, um, uh, by, um, by extraterrestrials, it also could be possible because there was a 1993-1994 and, uh, and, uh, a researcher from Canada her name is Persis Clarkson. Persis Clarkson have the support of the University of Alberta in Canada. I remember that because I was part of that interview in 1993. And uh, she was sent to study the Nazca Lines and in that time to continue the research of Maria Reich, the German mathematician who thought that they, um, also the Nazca Lines was a huge astronomical calendar. That have connection with certain constellations? Yes, it has also that. We have to see from an integral approach, from different uh, knowledge and disciplines. But Percy Clarkson started to study and started to map the places where she in the desert, when she can take some sort of a measurement beyond a radiocarbon 14th, which you cannot trust because you cannot uh, date the uh, how old is a stone, or unless you have a criteria of association when you find a ceramic or other remain that you can uh, date it with uh, RC14, therefore, for by association, you can say, oh, the geoglyphs or these structures were built in that time according to what we, the older uh, remains we found here. When she started to do that kind of research, it was canceled. Hmm, interesting, because as you know, the same thing happens with Egypt. And I think instead of uh, using carbon 14, if you look at the, the, the alignment 
or where the constellations were at that period of time, it's 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 safer to date that way. But Machu Picchu, for example, some people say, oh, you know, it's it's in it's in a mountain. They probably use slaves and they use trees in order to move the stones. But there are no trees up there because it's so high. So how in the world were they able to do that on top of the of, of the mountain there? Um, if we take a look at the whole uh, city of Cusco, uh, what we have now is the, uh, you see the main cathedrals in Cusco City, let's say Cusco downtown, actual downtown Cusco, the main cathedrals, they were built over Inca palaces. The one that remains in the center of the city is the Cori Cancha. Cori means gold, Cancha means open place, the place of the Temple of Gold. That is still, uh, uh, you know, is, is still there because it survived uh, because it was built. Uh, the colonial church was built over there on the on the sheet rock that was used to cover these Inca walls. They start to crack and crumble when there was a major earthquake in the late 50s. So the archaeologists discovered that when the part of the church um, collapsed, there were Inca walls behind it, and the the most and the best uh, in, imperial ink architecture stone that you can see because it has been protected and it, uh, and it you can see now if you explore that area and you visit the Kori Kancha temple and uh, I, has, I have a real video on my Facebook that I show in a brief way how even though in a corner of a, this magnificent walls in the Kori Kancha temple they were partially destroyed you can see that even though inside those huge stone laps are still glued to each other when you cannot pad any in a blade or a credit card or anything like that because it seems to me that it has been a phytochemical phyto had to do with plants and chemical minerals some sort of phytochemical formula that created a concrete a concrete that uses local stones from the local quarries and with an unknown technique with unknown architects never even found or seen by any uh, conquistador that would steal their knowledge, you see, they steal the technique to create more fortresses and, you know, to protect the Spaniard crown against their enemies in different colonies in Latin America. They did not find any architect, but they have this special uh, technique that can glue one uh, stone to the other, and as we see in the more complex, on the megalithic stones in Sacsayhuaman. Sacsayhuaman means satisfied falcon, which is 30 minutes on the mountain nearby uh, uh, downtown Cusco. And these huge massive stones in Sacsayhuaman, also they have this enormous, uh, enormous uh, work that cannot be done by thousands of people. Not even then you have to, you have to destroy a complete forests just to use their wood to transport those massive stones. It's impossible because we, uh, the Andes is very dramatic in the scenario, in the geography and landscape. It's not flat. So the issue here is that there was a formula used by megalithic uh, cultures, and that includes, you know, Egypt. And according to Joseph Davidovitz, Joseph Davidovitz is a, um, is a French expert in, um, in, in, in mineralogy, and uh, he has been awarded as the um, awarded by the by uh, the late François Mitterrand, you know, as a knight of the Republic of France, and he also have decoded certain information about 
the use of concrete, synthetic concrete, in Egypt as well as in Cusco, that he put into test in his laboratory, and he decide, and he find out that he can disintegrate that mix because if that would have been a stone, a stone from the quarry would not have bubbles of oxygen trapped on the stone or human hair. So for him, his discovery as a as a person who's trained, not an archaeologist, not an Egyptologist, he he thought this is man-made. So finally, after a couple of years of research, he found that this is a, a, a phytochemical formula that he's also capable to patent, and he's selling it to uh, China now. <laughs> so, so the same thing. This is this is how it works. Okay, Egyptologists don't want to see me. You know, um, you know, I'm 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 cursed by the Egyptologists. I cannot do this research in Peru because I have to go to the government. I have to go to the Institute of National Culture. I have to go through the church because the Coricancha Temple is inside of a 400, 500-year-old church. And it requires, it requires a, a, you know, government, government intervention or the French government to help these men to continue the research. But in the meantime, since nobody paid attention to him, he was able to find out this formula, you know, do it again in his uh, modern laboratory and sell this super concrete that can last centuries and can resist, you know, um, uh, earthquakes, seismic activity. The same way the uh, unknown architects of uh, the Inca Empire were able to build on the top of the mountain in Machu Picchu, which is impossible when you see that. When you go to the Inca Trail, it takes three nights, four days to get there. And they said, you use, they use the quarries on the top of the mountain, but you have to move massive amounts, tons of dirt from the top of the mountain to cut off completely with terraces from the top way down into the valley, close to the river, and build that magnificent, magnificent citadel. You know, I'm it's listening. Impossible. I'm listening to you, and I'm connecting dots in my in my head. And we have to take our one and only intermission, Renato. But I think of you probably know what Coral Castle is in in in, my, in South Florida. Do you? Yes. Yes. And I think of the, the you know the fact that he used coral in order to do that. And what is coral, in my opinion? Isn't that a a, a, a phytochemical? Isn't it plant with with a chemical or minerals bound together? Isn't that what a, a coral is? It is definitely. You are right. Well, you're right. Anyways, we have to take a one and only break. And when we come back, we're going to definitely uh, dive into your book, uh, E.T. Presence, The Role of USA and New World Visions. And also, I want to ask you, what happened to the knowledge? Because we look at the Egyptian culture. We look at the, at the Central or Mesoamerican civilizations. What happened to that knowledge? Because even today, archaeologists, engineers cannot figure it out and something happened with that knowledge when we come back tell us tell the listeners how to get in touch with your work by this book and all your books uh, well it's ET Presence the role of USA and New World Visions you can find it about Boa Press Amazon and uh, and also Barnes and Noble it's an electronic version you can contact me Renato Longaro I'm on Facebook and through my website www.renatolongaro.com I will be um, more than welcome any questions and comments about my book and my research about the Inca Empire as well, because I have written two books related to that. <laughs> Absolutely. And just one reminder that we will be once again at the East City Ranch, uh, Renato 
and other people uh, have some names. Uh, we have James Gillen, and of course, Inelia Benz. We have Neil Kramer once again. We have Renato, Jason Verbelli, Dean Clifford, John Kelly, and yours truly. So I hope that those who are listening, if you still have a chance to to, uh, to buy your tickets, uh, you have to go to our website. There is a link there where you can uh, send your request for, for, for tickets. The dates are June 29th through July the 2nd. Once again, last time I went, I saw over 10 UFOs. So I don't like that I'm getting a little bit desensitized, Renato, but I look forward to seeing you there again. <laughs> this is Mel Fabregas. I'm here with Renato Longato, and we'll be right back with much more. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is James Gilliland, and you're listening to Veritas. 